also he is the logic, and, and that's really the deeper meaning of the word logos. He's, he's what makes everything else make sense and fit together. And so he, he was God. Again, if, if people tell you, as the Jehovah's Witnesses do, that he, this should be translated, A, God, get the tape from Sunday. And I spent some time developing and demonstrating that that's certainly not the case, that in the Greek, this can only be God with a capital G. And he was in the beginning with God. That doesn't mean he started at any point. It means he was there before everything started. And that becomes clear when it says all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. If there's anything that's created, it was created by him. Paul tells us that in Colossians chapter 1 as well. So he can't be created. He can't have been someone who was created because nothing that was created wasn't created by him. And so since he couldn't have been created, all he could be is God because God is the one who's existent before time, before creation. And so if he's always been here, then he is God by definition. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness and the darkness didn't comprehend it or overcome it. Jesus came to the world to bring light it was a dark world, and in the same way as we mentioned Sunday, that when God created the heavens and the earth, it was dark, and his first words, God's first words that we have recorded are, let there be light. So also, as Jesus came to the world, the light shined, the darkness was pushed aside, there was a, everything changed at that point. And anything that is illuminating in this world comes from him. He, he said later, I'm the light of the world. And so, again, John driving this home right from the beginning, the darkness didn't, it, it's not that it didn't comprehend it. Later on, it says that, uh, you know, they, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but that's not really the emphasis in this particular verse in verse 5. It, it's an old word, comprehend, but really what it means is the darkness couldn't quench the light. The darkness couldn't, uh, you know, put the light out, couldn't blow it out, and so... Um, there, then it goes into this little thing about John the Baptist. Now, it's kind of confusing, and you know, when, when we tell people, oh, Gospel of John is the first book you should read as a Christian, I'm not quite so sure, because if you pick this book up and just begin reading it cold, it could be kind of confusing. I mean, already the parts that we read, you look at it, okay, in the beginning was the Word. If you don't know anything about the Bible, you're going, what do you mean the Word? What Word? The Word was with God and was God. Does that make sense? And, and, you know, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And you're so confused. And then finally it comes to there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And you think, oh, John, good. The book was written by John. No, this is a different John. <laughs> so it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of confusing. But for us mature people, we can figure it out. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. John was there to reflect the light, to point at the light. And that's actually our role as well. We're not necessarily to be lights, except to the extent that we're reflectors. And a reflector can actually be a big help when it comes to light. If you have a light bulb without a reflector, it makes a big difference. 
and if you have one with a reflector. And so John the Baptist shone forth, but he shone forth by reflecting who Jesus was and, and the truth of him. It's interesting that it says that the light hit everyone. That, that, that was the true light that lights everyone that comes into the world. I believe that everyone who sets foot on this planet, everyone who is born, is illuminated in some way by God. Now, that light may not be enough in and of itself to save someone, but the Bible teaches clearly that it's enough to condemn someone because we don't respond to the light that we have showing that we're sinners. Remember before you were a Christian, there were times when God was trying to get through to you. Even before you accepted Jesus and you understood, oh, he's the light of the world, before that, there were still little blessings that God brought into your life where he was trying to tell you something. Maybe some of your earliest memories are of a, a Christmas that just all of a sudden, for some reason, you got a warm feeling. Or someone reached out to you and cared about you. Or you saw some corny movie and yet, you know, Tiny Tim was there and it touched your heart. And, you know, it's... God was trying to get through to you through all of these things. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And so God speaks and, and shines forth in a lot of different ways in our lives. And I don't believe that there could be even one good thing on this earth if God didn't do it. No one on their own can manufacture good. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He... God blesses people who don't deserve it. That's how we know his love. While we were yet sinners, it says Christ died for us. So God was shining light, and that's what John is saying here. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. You know, there he was, the creator, and he wasn't recognized as such. He came to his own, that is to the Jewish people. And his own did not receive him. They rejected him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That's us. We receive him. It's why we talk about, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you need to accept him. Because that's how we open the door of our life to the Lord and say, God, I'll let you do this. Now, to some people, particularly to people of a Calvinistic or Reformed persuasion, they don't like this verse. You won't ever hear them quoting it because they believe that it's just God forces you to be saved. You have no choice in the matter. They, in fact, you'll even hear Calvinists say all the time, you know, it's heretical to say that you accept Jesus. You don't accept him. It's a question of whether or not he accepts you. Well, he says, whoever comes to me I'm not going to throw him away. And, and it says here clearly, if you receive him, then he gives you that ability to become his child, to, to come into his family. And so there's clearly a responsibility on our part to receive him. If we don't receive him, it isn't because we weren't chosen. It's because we chose not to receive him. And so as many as received him, he gave them the right or the power, the authority to become children of God just by believing in his name. Who, now these are the people who were born again, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So salvation doesn't come by blood. You can't inherit it. If your parents are Christians, that doesn't make you a Christian. If your relatives are godly, it doesn't make you godly. It's something that you have to 
decide for yourself. But he goes on to say, you're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. See, there isn't anything inside us that can cause us to save ourselves, to merit any kind of salvation, nor of the will of man. So no one else can say, I want you to be saved, and so I'm going to drag you into this. We, we, we would love to be able to do that if it worked. There's people I know that don't know the Lord, aren't walking with him, and if there was any way that my will could get them saved, I'd do it. But it's not of the will of man, but it's of God. So here's this interesting um, tension that would seem almost to be contradictory, that it's about God's will, that's how you're born again, and yet, as many as receive him, to them, he gives the ability to become saved. He, he draws them to himself. And so, what is it? It sounds like, wait a minute, is it God's will that causes us to be born again? He says it's not our will, but then he says we need to receive him and have faith in him. Well, I don't know. It's, both are true. They're both taught side by side. In fact, if you, if you get interested in this whole idea of sovereignty of God and the free will of man, any scripture that you look at that sounds Calvinistic, you'll always find right in the context a verse that sounds very Arminian. And every verse that you find that sounds Arminian, right there in the context, there's a scripture that talks about it being God's sovereignty and his choice. And so John was comfortable laying them both out side by side. And theologically, you don't ever want to make the mistake of just taking part of the scripture because it's more comfortable. So I don't want to just say, hey, as many as received him, so it's all our choice, and then ignore the next verse. But at the same time, I don't want to say, oh, it's not by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God, and ignore, but as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Take them both. If it doesn't make sense to you, it just proves that your brain isn't as big as God's. Don't worry about it. Just believe them both. Don't, don't put yourself into a theological category where you think you have it figured out. Better minds than yours have tried to figure it out, and whenever they do, they're wrong. It's, Calvinism and Arminianism are both correct in what they assert, but they're both in error in what they deny. Either extreme ignores certain scriptures. So I'd rather accept them both and, and feel kind of stupid than to pick one or the other and really be stupid. So... <laughs> And the Word became flesh, the incarnation. The Word of God, the Word that created the world, the Word that, that was in the beginning with God, was God, became flesh, amazing, and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, pitched his tent with us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus became a man, and John says, we saw his glory. The glory that he had before he ever came. Jesus in John 17 prayed, God, glorif Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. And so that glory shone through. It may have taken a little bit of time for it to soak in, but the truth is, before long, the disciples saw him and said, man, this guy couldn't be anything but God. He couldn't be anything except what he says he is because the glory of God just shines through out of his life. And so John said that over in 1 John chapter 1. He said, hey, we've seen him. Our hands handled him. He's the word of life. 
And, and so here, again, the incarnation, the Word becoming flesh, the greatest miracle ever. But then he's saying, and we saw it. We saw the glory of God in him. And the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Now, a lot of times people have an issue with saying that Jesus is the begotten of the Father. The first verse maybe you ever memorized was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would have everlasting life, wouldn't perish. But the fact that he's begotten doesn't mean that he was born from God. It's not a... It's not an indication that therefore God gave birth to him and the father therefore is in some way superior. The scriptures contradict that all along. And again, we just saw it was from the beginning. Everything that was made was made by him. So that can't be the case. By referring to him as begotten, it's referring to that connection that he is of the same essence. And that's why the word is chosen. It was a big deal to them. It's the reason why they had genealogies is because they were fascinated with that connection, the fact that someone could come out of someone else, that, that therefore they were of the same essence as their parent. And so it doesn't say that he was the only begotten of Mary, but he was the only begotten of God. He emanates from God, although that emanation, that begottenness is something that has always been and will always be. It's just referring to him being so intimately connected with God. And we'll see some other passages that talk about that later. So, he was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. These words are used together a lot in the scriptures. And Jesus embodied them. It's pretty easy to show grace without truth. And it's pretty easy to show truth without grace. And for most of us, we kind of vacillate back and forth. We try to show grace because we know that God, that's what God wants us to do. So we're gracious, we're gracious, we're gracious, and then we finally go, that's it, man. I need to tell you the truth. And when we say I need to tell you the truth, it usually means I'm not going to be gracious anymore. But Jesus Christ embodied grace and truth. The fact that he shows grace to us is the truth. He doesn't look at us and squint his eyes so that he can't see very clearly. He sees exactly who we are and what we are, and yet he can show his grace to us anyway because of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. He faced the reality. He didn't just allow himself to be blinded to the truth. He was honest and straightforward and came and did what he needed to do by his grace. If we reflect him, we'll learn to continue to be honest and tell the truth, but to do it in a gracious way, speaking the truth in love, Paul talks about. So here Jesus embodied that grace and truth, a sermon in itself. This is going to be the problem with the Gospel of John. If we're going to get through it anywhere close to before the rapture, I'm going to have to keep moving, but every one of these things you can... You can appreciate the problem. Boy, there's just so much here. It's such a rich, perhaps the richest book in the Bible. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John the Baptist said, He was before me. Now, John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus, and he was older than Jesus. And yet he knew Jesus didn't come from when he was born. He was before him, and so John said, hey, I, I've told you about him. This is the guy I've been talking about. He comes after me, but he's preferred before me. He existed before me. 
And of his fullness, now the Apostle John speaking, of his fullness we've all received and grace for grace. His fullness. That's that great word that Colossians, Paul spends in Colossians all kinds of time developing the idea of the fullness. It means everything that there is to God. There were some people in those days who had this philosophy, it was called Gnosticism. They kind of believed that everything that was material was bad and everything that was spiritual was good. But they, they had this idea that there was this long staircase that went from bad material man to perfect spiritual God. And you had to follow all these steps. Angels were mediators along the way, suffering and, and uh, denying the flesh and, and you know, godly teachers and great literature. And all of these things were considered to be a part of that staircase. And they called that staircase the pleroma or the fullness. It was the idea that this is the total package, the road between God and man. Of course, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. The Gnostics didn't understand this because they couldn't see how the Word could become flesh. And so they figured it needs a lot of intermediary steps, but the truth is Jesus was completely God and completely man, and therefore he could serve as the mediator between God and men. And so he was the pleroma. He was the full package. In, in Colossians 2, it says, In him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead in a bodily form. And in him you've been made complete, another form of the word pleroma, fullness. And so here John is reminding us that in him we have all we need. Of his fullness we've all received and grace for grace. It was only out of his grace that he's touched us, that he's received us, that he loves us. And he takes his fullness and gives it to us. Great deal. And so... The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, they looked to Moses as being their great, you know, leader, the one who brought them from Egypt, who gave them the law. And up until this point, all they had was the law. But the law couldn't save. The law wasn't full of grace and truth. The law was truth, but not grace. It just wasn't there. Because sacrifice couldn't forgive people's sins. All it could do was provide a temporary covering. All the law could really do is show you that you were in trouble, show you that you were busted. And, and so he says, look, Moses and the law, not putting it down, but Moses only gave us the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. No one has seen God at any time. That is, no one has seen the complete essence of God, God the Father. No one has seen the Spirit either. The only thing of God that we see is Jesus Christ, but that's all we need to see. He has declared him. Now, as it says here, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. Interesting, some Greek manuscripts, instead of having Son there, they have the word God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Take your choice. It's, I tend to think that it's the manuscripts that are the oldest that say God. It's the manuscripts that we use for the New King James Bible that say Son. But at any rate, 
it emphasizes the fact that early on they understood that to be the son of God was to be God. And it, it says, who is in the bosom of the Father. That is, see, if, if Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, then he can't be the Father. There's a distinction by him being there in relationship to the Father. Jesus isn't the Father, and yet he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but they're distinct. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct members of the Godhead, each of them completely God, each of them containing everything that there is to God. So here we see the distinctness between the Son and the Father, but he's in the bosom of the Father. It's as close as you can get. There's this intimacy between the Father and the Son that we really can't understand. How can the Son still be seen to be in the bosom of the Father while he's declaring him? doesn't make sense. But the Bible teaches it, and, and the imagery here is just to let us know. The Son is not the Father, but they are so closely intertwined that it's difficult to even recognize the distinction other than just to accept it. And where it says, He has declared him, that word he is emphatic in the Greek, and it could be and perhaps should be translated, he himself has declared him. The idea is he's the only one who could declare him. You know, in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times divers manners spake in time pass unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us in his son. He's the expression of who God is. And he is the only one who could express it. The law couldn't show who God was. The law could only show who we are. The prophets could give glimpses, but the most value that we get from the prophets is they're telling us about Jesus who is going to come. And so here again, he himself, he's the only one that could have done what he did by, by declaring the Father. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, this is John the Baptist. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. See, as John the Baptist started ministering out there in the wilderness, people knew something was happening. You could feel it. Perhaps through prophecy, they knew that very shortly the Messiah should be coming. The, even the wise men were able to calculate that, probably from Daniel's prophecy, but something was going on in the nation. And John the Baptist, kind of a weird guy out there in the wilderness, was attracting a huge crowd. And so they were trying to figure out who he was. And they came to him and they said, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm not the Christ, the anointed one. I'm not the Messiah. And they said, well, then what in the world are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Now, the reason they ask that is because in the last chapter of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, it says, before the Messiah comes, that Elijah would come and introduce him and fill this role. And so it was reasonable to go, well, if you're not the Messiah, maybe you're Elijah. But he said clearly, no, I'm not. Now, this is kind of confusing because when you look through the four Gospels, it seems sort of... Um, you know, Jesus, on the one hand, seems to say that he kind of is Elijah. And on the other hand, he, John the Baptist is saying definitely he isn't. Now, over in Matthew eleven fourteen, and you can turn over there quickly with me. This is where the problem comes in, and critics have a field day. Jesus is 
talking about John the Baptist, saying some good things about him and, and showing that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. That was the prophecy in verse 10 there in chapter 11. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So that was John the Baptist, Malachi 3. But then they were thinking that, boy, then Malachi 4, Elijah, this must be Elijah and he must be Elijah. And so Jesus, in talking to them some more about it, said in verse uh, 14, well, in verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he goes on to say, this generation is basically rejecting me. So Jesus said, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. Eli John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. And so you go, was he or wasn't he? Well, yes and no. See, if the Jews had, I believe, if the Jews had received Jesus as their Messiah, if he had come unto his own and they had received him, then John the Baptist could have been the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. He would have fulfilled the role of that. But because they rejected him, I believe that Elijah is still going to come as one of the two witnesses that we see in the book of Revelation. Now you go, but wait a minute. He was either Elijah or he wasn't. Well, he could have fulfilled that prophecy enough. And over in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, when John the Baptist's dad was hearing from the angel before John the Baptist was born, he said, name him John. And he said, he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1, 17. And so John the Baptist had a unique connection with Elijah Perhaps maybe the same guardian angel was with him. I don't know. But at the very least, and I tend to think what it means, is that he was given that same kind of anointing, that same kind of package of gifts, that same kind of calling, so that he was close enough to Elijah that he could have fulfilled that role. But the people didn't receive him. It doesn't matter. So he was rejected and he was killed, as you know. And, and ultimately, I believe that Elijah will return during the great tribulation along with Moses these two witnesses that come we know for sure one of them is Elijah because it says that in Malachi 4 the other one some people think will be Enoch because Enoch never died he was just taken to the Lord um, Moses death was a little fishy he was the one who reported it himself in the last chapter of Deuteronomy they couldn't find his bones there was some sort of an angelic battle over his bones, and I think that's because God had a special purpose for him in the tribulation. During the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah showed up and talked to Jesus, and so I think it's conclusive that Moses and Elijah will come back during the tribulation, but that's, we're getting off track. <laughs> Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? Now he's going back to Deuteronomy 18 when Moses said, God, Moses prophesied and said one day God's going to raise up a prophet like unto me and and you're going to hear him and so uh, he was talking about Jesus Christ they didn't know who the prophet was they thought maybe that prophet was Elijah maybe it wasn't the theologians differed and so they asked John are you the prophet and he said no then they said to him then who are you so that we can answer those who sent us and what do you say about yourself and he said I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Again, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. I'm the fulfillment of, of that which had been foretold by Malachi, 
Um, and also, well, here actually, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And again, this prophecy of the one that would come ahead of the Messiah. And so he said, as the prophet Isaiah said, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. So they were checking it out. And they asked him, then why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And John said, you know, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you don't know. You're not even going to believe what he is able to do. All I do, I dip people in water, he says. Uh, later on, he's going to make it clear that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. But he said, there's one among you, you don't even know him, and he is the one who comes after me, but he's preferred before me. His sandal strap, I'm not worthy to loose. This, there's somebody, you're all interested in me, but he's going, there's another one who's here already, and I can't, I'm not worthy to tie his shoe. And so they did these things in Bethabara, which was just beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing out there in the wilderness. And uh, Bethabara was another name for Bethany. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An amazing revelation, especially when he was saying it about his cousin. Not too many people could honor their cousin in that way, but John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. He saw it. Now this happened, you compare it with the other disciples, this happened after he baptized him because now he goes on to say, I got a real revelation when I baptized him and I saw the Holy Spirit descending on him and that's how I knew who he was. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. I was doing this to prepare the way. John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John gives this testimony and says, I knew that I was preparing the way for someone. And when I saw Jesus coming and I baptized him, and I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him, then I realized this is who I've been prophesying about. This is the one that I've been preparing the way for him. The one that I'm not worthy to tie his shoe. The one who, though he came after me, he's preferred before me. He existed before me. I know who he is. He's the Son of God. And so the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. John had certain followers at that point. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. That phrase, looking at Jesus, is a, is a Greek term that means not just to look and look away, but it's fixing your gaze on something. He looked at him and he stared. He's here with his disciples, but he looked at Jesus and he stared at him and he goes, This is the one. This is it. He's, he's the Lamb of God. And the two disciples said, Well, what are we following you for then? If he's the man, you're not the man. See you, John. And they took off and began to follow Jesus. And that was totally fine with John the Baptist. He knew what his role was. And it's good for us whenever we have people who start to follow us, who want to become our disciples. It's good for us to just point at Jesus and say, that's the Lamb of God. Look at him. Check him out. Follow him. It's not about me. Don't follow me. I'm only pointing the way. I'm just a signpost. And and so Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? What do you guys want? They're following him. And they said to him, Rabbi, which is uh, 
to say when translated, teacher, where do you live? Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. Interesting that the first words that we see Jesus saying here in his ministry are, what do you seek? What are you looking for? He says the same thing to us. As we begin to watch him, as our awareness is open to who he is, he says, what do you seek? Because the truth is what we always sought was him. He's the one we're looking for. But he drives that home with everyone in a different way, but he has different ways of telling us, you're looking at me, what are you looking for? You'll find it right here. You know, they wanted to know where he lived, and he said, come and see. It's going to take a little while to explain this, basically. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. 10th hour, they, they started at 6 in the morning, so this was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew started out being a disciple of John the Baptist, being taught by him. But then when he saw Jesus, he realized, oh, this is what John's been talking about. Now, we don't know who the other disciple was who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus, but a lot of commentators believe that it was John himself who wrote the Gospel of John, John the brother of James. And I think that's likely. John, throughout his Gospel, doesn't refer to himself in a real direct way. He tends to be more oblique when he refers to himself, calling himself the disciple who Jesus loved. But in the same way that in the Gospel of Mark, where it says that there was a young man who was following when Jesus went to be crucified, and then he ran out and lost his, lost his clothes in the, in the, in the path. Um, most people believe that that was Mark writing about himself. Uh, this would explain how John had so much insight and information about John the Baptist if he had been one of John the Baptist's disciples. So it could be, we don't know for sure. But Andrew went and found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So, so John was probably there at this point. Andrew and Peter both come. And now when Jesus looked at them, the same phrase that we saw just earlier, he fixed his gaze at, at him, at Peter. He said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, Simon was his name by birth, very common Jewish name. Cephas was a word that means rock. It's, sometimes he's called Cephas, sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's called Peter. But Cephas is the Chaldean or the Aramaic name for, word for rock. And and Peter was the Greek word for rock. So what, depending on which language they were using, um, it, was, uh, it was also a play on words, by the way, because the name meaning rock, later you remember when Jesus said to Peter, your name is Peter, but upon this rock, uh, upon, you know, your name is Petros, but upon this Petra, I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Because now in, in Aramaic, the word for rock is the same word as the, as the name Peter as it is in Greek. In English, Peter and rock are totally unrelated. A lot of languages, they are the same. For instance, in French, the word Pierre means Peter, but it also means rock. So Jesus gave him this name, Peter. He had a reason behind it, and we'll see that later on. 
The next day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They probably knew each other. And Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael wasn't convinced. Here they'd been looking forward to the Messiah coming, and now his brother comes. And you know, you don't take your brother seriously anyway, but he goes, Hey, we found the Messiah. And his attitude was, Yeah, we'll see about that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He knew about Jesus, but he thought, Nazareth, that's the slums. Perhaps he was alluding to the fact that the Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah would be born um, in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, then moved there to Nazareth. The, the prophecies also said that he would come out of Egypt, which we know that they had fled to Egypt and came forth from there as well. So um, all of them were true, but his attitude was, eh, he's from Nazareth. I'll believe it when I see it. And Philip said, well, come on, check it out. Come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in, indeed in whom is no deceit. Jesus liked Nathanael because of Nathaniel's attitude that, yeah, we'll see about that. I'm skeptical a bit. Jesus never gets bummed out when people are skeptical, when they ask for more evidence. He loves to give it to them. That's just the way he is. And so when Nathaniel had this attitude, he said, Nathaniel, hey, you're a guy who doesn't fake it. You're a guy who just doesn't go along with the crowd. You're an Israelite who's sincere. You're a real Jew. You're also a guy that wants to know the truth. And so Nathaniel said, how do you even know me? And Jesus said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. They would sit under the fig tree often. It was a tradition that they had to meditate, especially when they were wrestling with something that was difficult. Perhaps Nathaniel had been there with John the Baptist also, and as he sees some of his friends who are saying, oh, we're leaving John the Baptist, we found the Messiah. He just didn't know what to think. And so maybe it was in the midst of that turmoil of spirit as he was there under the fig tree. Jesus says, I saw you. I knew what you were wrestling with. And, and, and so when Nathaniel heard him say that, he said, uh, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. It all makes sense now. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Believe me, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Basically, going back to this, he wasn't going to literally see that, but the story of the angels ascending and descending goes back to where Jacob was laying there with his head on a pillow and he, his eyes, he woke up or had a vision and he saw this ladder that went from heaven to earth. And there were angels going up and down on the ladder. Well, the ladder was a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the one, again, that staircase, the stairway to heaven, if you will. No, you know, not Led Zeppelin's, but, but Jacob's. He's the one who had these, the whole progression. Those who go from heaven to earth go on him. He's the one. And so Jesus is saying, you know, you, because I told you what you were doing when you were under the fig tree, well, that's fine. But he said, man, you're going to see a lot more than that. Because as you follow me, 
you're going to discover that I'm the one that put the bridge between heaven and earth. I'm the one that Jacob was dreaming about. I'm the one that will allow you to climb onto that ladder and to pass from earth into heaven. And so, again, uh, letting him know this is only the beginning. You're going to get a lot more good stuff. Chapter 2, we have the marriage at Cana of Galilee and Jesus' first public miracle, first miracle that we know of or have recorded anyway. On the third day, now back earlier in chapter 1, it was talking about in verse 29, the next day, and so um, it could be referring, but then verse 35 again, the next day, and now it's the third day, probably three days after what happened before, because they've traveled to Cana of Galilee, which was about a two-day journey. So Jesus was going to Cana to attend a wedding. The wedding was probably one of his relatives. It doesn't tell who got married, but the fact that his mom was there would tend to indicate that it was some family member who was getting married. And so there was a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. Now, this is kind of an interesting piece of trivia. The mother of Jesus, of course, the Catholics call her the mother of God. Um, I understand what they're saying, and there are some references in church history that I'm not even going to jump all over that because she was the mother of Jesus. Jesus was completely God, so I'm not going to pick on the Catholics on this. But what's interesting to me is John here doesn't call her Mary, doesn't give her name, just calls her the mother of Jesus. Now, you think that that might, you know, that kind of struck me as, as odd. I wonder why I didn't say Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's what we're used to hearing. And so I very quickly got on my computer and looked for the word Mary in the Gospel of John, and it's never there. John never used Mary's name, Jesus, the mother of Mary. He talks about Mary and Martha. He talks about Mary Magdalene, but never refers to the mother of Jesus as being Mary, the mother of Jesus. I don't know why. I mean, that may not even interest you at all, but I, I, I think it's kind of fascinating. John, again, you know, perhaps we know that on the cross, Jesus kind of asked Mary to adopt John and John to adopt Mary, which would let us believe that Joseph had probably died somewhere along the line. We see no record of him after Jesus was 13 years old. And so, but they had this special bond, this special relationship, but, but John saw Mary as being important and significant because of her relationship to Jesus Christ. Not because of who she was, but because of who he was. And, and yet, he totally honored her and obviously was very close to her. The fact that he called her the mother of Jesus, I have an idea that Mary herself, John was the closest disciple to Mary and again took her to live at his house for the rest of her life. And it might be that Mary, and you can understand it, I mean, my mom does this sometimes, yours perhaps does too, kind of brags about, you know, whose mother they are. And, you know, it used to just drive me crazy. I got used to it. When, you know, every time my mom would meet anyone, it would be, oh, yeah, that David's my son. And I'm like, you know, just give it a rest. And, you know, but, hey, parents are proud. I understand that. And, and uh, but it would seem perhaps that Mary would, in her later life, because remember this gospel was written very late, maybe she was the one who said, don't even call me Mary, Let, call me the mother of Jesus. That, that would be a great title for her at, at any rate. So Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now at this point, 
a lot of the disciples were Jesus' relatives, as you know, you know James and John were, were uh, his cousins, and it's, and it's questionable some of the others were perhaps related to him as well. But at the wedding, they ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, why would Mary come to Jesus and say, uh, they're out of wine? His ministry was just starting. It was looking good. He had some disciples gathered around him. John the Baptist had put his stamp of approval, and I think Mary was just feeling kind of anxious. Was, this was her way of saying, hey, Jesus, here's a chance for you to show people who you are. Let's get this show on the road. Mary had lived her whole adult life from probably when, when Jesus was born. She was perhaps 13, 14, 15 years old. She had lived all of this time, 30 years, with something hanging over her head. She was pregnant before she was married to Joseph. And there were a lot of indications that Joseph wasn't the father. There were stories about God making her pregnant. But hey, a lot of the people didn't buy that. There were whispers, there was talk. And so Mary, being this incredibly godly woman, calmly waiting for her son to, to justify her in a way. And he's 30 years old, and he hasn't done anything to prove that he really did come from God. And so Mary was probably really anxious at this point. Come on, Jesus, let's do something. So she didn't come to Jesus like he was a bartender. Or he was gonna, just going to go get some more wine. She was hoping for a miracle. And Jesus kind of pushes her off a little bit and says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's going, look, I know you want a big show right now, but this isn't the time yet. Jesus had an incredible sense of timing. He only did what the Father told him to do, and he always did it when the Father told him to do it. And that's still the case today. I feel sometimes so frustrated at how slow God moves. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And man, it seems like it sometimes. You see a situation, you're praying that God would move, and he's just not in a hurry. He's laying in the back of the boat sleeping, and we feel like, God, your timing is terrible. Couldn't be worse. But the truth is always his timing's been perfect. He knows what he's doing. There's a method to all of his planning and how he is fulfilling that which he, is, he came to fulfill. And so he let his mom know, calm down. Of course, he ends up doing a miracle anyway, but it, it, it wasn't in the kind of promotive, big-shot way that probably Mary was hoping for. She gave up on him, and she went to the servants and said, hey, whatever he says, do it. Now, again, Mary, a blessed woman. As, as Protestants, we're too guilty of not honoring Mary. She, was, she is to be hugely honored. But at the same time, she's not the one who can stand between God and man. She's not the one to pray to. She's not our co-redemptrix. She was a woman who was clueless at this point, And her attitude is, talk to Jesus and do whatever he says. And that's her message today. You don't need to pray to her. She would tell you, talk to my boy. And that's what she told them. And so there were there, were there six water pots of stone um, that they used for the purification, ceremonial cleansing. And they'd, held, they'd hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece, big old bottles. 
I mean, think about it. That's like, you know, four to six sparklets bottles all in one big old stone um, uh, dish. And Jesus came and told them, fill those water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, pull some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So here they have six times, you know, it's 20 to 30 gallons, so t- say 25, 150 gallons of water that they've drawn. And now they take some of it out and go show it to the guy who was the, the caterer. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that was made wine, Jesus had turned it into wine miraculously. And he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, hey, you put the good wine out at the beginning. Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests are drunk, then you put out the cheap stuff. You've kept the good wine until now. He's going, guy, usually what you do is if you have some really fancy sort of wine that's, that's really excellent, has a perfect taste and, a, and, and just full body, and I don't know wines. You know, when I, when I was not a Christian, I drank some, but it was like, it was definitely the wine that they would bring out later, the, you know, the Annie Greensprings or something, whatever we could get our hands on. But it wasn't some, you know, Chardonnay or some kind of expensive sort of wine. But he's going, man, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. What's the deal? Normally, you ought to bring this stuff out first while people can still taste. And once they're drunk, you can give them anything. And, uh, and so he said, you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Remember in chapter 1, he came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Well, more and more he was showing his glory just by the way that he lived and what he did and his disciples believed in him. Now, this turning water to wine, it's kind of odd that Jesus chose this as his first miracle. That he came and like, hey, the first thing I'm going to do is make some really good wine. Now, there are people who suggest, and you can read a lot of it, that would say that actually the good wine was fresh grape juice and, and the bad wine was, was uh, you know, cheap wine was something that they would give later that would be fermented. But there really isn't any kind of biblical or historical support for that. Um, it's a... It's a complicated sort of question when you talk about, well, should Christians drink alcoholic beverages? The Bible has a lot to say about how alcohol can deceive you, and you read through Proverbs, has a lot of bad things to say about it. It says leaders shouldn't drink it. In the New Testament, it says that elders and pastors and deacons certainly shouldn't do it. Um, it clouds your judgment. Paul said in Ephesians that if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, that's like the opposite of being drunk with wine. And so giving up that control of your body to something like wine is a real problem. And so for me personally, I don't drink at all. But I don't judge other people for it, and I don't think we should. I could build a real strong biblical case for it. I've been taught that. I've read it, and I've heard it. But frankly, it's not there. It's just something that we have to twist. Now, to me, drinking today is much more dangerous than it was back then. If you went to a wedding there and you drank too much and you were stumbling home, you might fall in a ditch or something. You'd wake up in the morning and go home. In our culture, in our society, you drink too much, you go get in a, in a car that weighs a couple of tons 
and you go barreling down the street at, you know, 100 miles an hour not know what you're doing, you can kill people. You can kill yourself. You can do a lot of damage. I also think that in our world today, alcohol has just done so much damage to so many people that I just, you know, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me, not because I want to build some big legalistic case against it, but, and again, this is just for me, this isn't for you, but to me, I think of the lives that I know of that have been destroyed by alcohol. I think of the things that people have done who I love that it ended up sending them to jail for years because of being drunk, and, and as a result, to me, there's just a sour taste in my mouth, pardon the, the pun, when I think about alcohol. And yet, here Jesus made it. I don't completely understand why he did or why he chose that. I don't know why he chose to do his first miracle at a wedding. But it seemed like Jesus at this point wanted to make a statement that not only blessed marriage, but that also even blessed their enjoyment, even blessed their satisfaction and fulfillment. Now, later, he would have plenty of other things to say that would mitigate some of these factors, but I think he wanted to come in right away and, and show that he didn't come to spoil people's fun. He didn't come to be the dud at the party, the party pooper, but that he came to actually fulfill people's lives. And so, hey, they were having a good time, and he wasn't going to go, okay, I see you having fun. That's it. It's all over. You know, um, perhaps he would have, if he had shown up on Super Bowl Sunday, he would have grabbed a piece of pizza and watched the game and cheered for one of the teams. He just came on this, on this situation and he said, he, he, he kind of showed him, I'm not here to mess things up. I didn't come into the world, as he would say later in chapter 3, to condemn the world, but to save the world. I'm not coming to, to judge you or to point my finger at you. That's not what I'm about. And so, Somehow this must have been communicating that. I don't profess to understand it completely. And, you know, if you think that that means I'm indecisive, here I, I'm bagging on alcohol and then I'm saying, yeah, but Jesus drank. Yeah, I think this was, I don't, it doesn't say he drank it, but I think he made real wine. I think Jesus, my own personal conviction is that Jesus perhaps drank wine as well because later on when they're criticizing him, they said, they said, John the Baptist came and didn't eat or drink, Jesus said. But the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you call him a, a wine-bibber and a drunkard. They wouldn't have been accusing him. of. I mean, it's not that he didn't. John the Baptist drank, but he drank water. He didn't drink wine. And, but Jesus drank it, and so they called him a drunk. I'm absolutely convinced there's no way he ever drank enough to make him drunk. Um, but... I think there's an indication in Scripture that he probably had a glass of wine um, on occasions. And in different parts of the world, that's a totally normal thing. If you go over to a church in Europe, it's not that unusual for them to have a beer party after church. The funny thing is, if you walk in there with makeup on your face, they'll be highly stumbled. Oh, you can't be a Christian and wear makeup. Well, perhaps because of our enlightenment about the results of alcohol and how it affects certain people, um, we've developed our perspective on that. And, and um, you know, I, I don't believe that it should be a legalistic sort of thing, but at the same time, obviously not abuse, but I'm not going to twist the Scripture in order to fit it to, to my perspective on things. So you do what you want to do, and I'll do what the Lord convicts me of, and we'll all be fine before God. He... 
the one thing we know is he doesn't want to interrupt us just to stop our fun. That's not God's spirit at all. One time uh, I was at Calvary and there was a musician from Russia. At that time, the Iron Curtain was still up and, and this guy had an underground ministry that was incredible. He was a rock musician who made rock albums, but they were about Jesus. That was a radical concept in, in Russia back then in the 70s. But he came over to Calvary and so he was going to record an album up in the sound room at Calvary Costa Mesa. And so I was helping up there, and he was making this album, and then he said, and his English wasn't very good, it was really cute, but he, he said, uh, you know, oh, I want to do something for you, special. I go, hey, great. He goes and gets in his bag, and he says, he tried to explain it, he wanted to serve us communion. So we're going, oh, that's really sweet. So he gets this glass, and puts his juice in it and gets a piece of bread out and we're all there in a circle holding hands and we're praying and then started passing around the elements of communion. And when the cup came to me, I was the first one that he gave it to and I took a sip of it and it was very strong. I mean, you know, the Russians and their alcohol. It was really strong. And I was like, and I passed it down and everyone I watched, you know, everyone's like... <laughs> We didn't want to say anything to offend him, but afterwards we were all down in the bathroom washing our mouths out in case Pastor Chuck came along and smelled our breath. But <laughs> Now in beginning in verse 13, we see the cleansing of the temple, what it's called. Jesus did this twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple, that is the courtyard surrounding the temple, not in the holy place or anything, those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now, what they would do in those days, when you came to make a sacrifice, you'd need to present your animal, and it had to be without spot and blemish. And so either present your lamb or the oxen, or if you were poor, the, the birds that you would give, and they would inspect them. Well, what they would do, they would always find some flaw and then, what can you do? You traveled all the way to Jerusalem. They said, well, we have pre-inspected animals right here, and they would sell them to people at inflated prices to rip them off. And then, when you were going to pay your tithe, they wouldn't accept Roman money. And so, you'd have to exchange your Roman money for Hebrew, for shekels, and, and give that to the Lord, and they ripped you off on the exchange rate as well. So, it was a thriving business and a real con, and so Jesus came on this scene and saw it, and he made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. I would have loved to have seen that happen. It's, that's one of my favorite Bible events. And He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's over in Psalm 69. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Here he just comes in here and tears the whole place apart, throws all of these official business people. You know, I'm the official sheep seller of the temple. I'm the money changer that works for the temple. And my money's scattered all over the place. And it's, you've made a mess of things. And it's amazing that he did away with it. I don't think a sissy little Jesus like what you tend to see in the movies could have done this, could have pulled this off. They would have stopped him. But that could be wrong. You know, Jesus had a power that went beyond 
sheer bulk and size. And so it may be Jesus was a little guy and that surprised him. But he had the kind of authority. He went in and tore the place apart and they said, how do you do this? Well, who do you think you are? What kind of authority do you have? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he was talking about his body. The only sign he was going to give them was the sign of the resurrection, but they thought he was talking about the building. It took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So Jesus let them know, I'm not going to do tricks for you. The Pharisees, the religious people, they were always looking for him to give a sign just because they were entertained by it. It was like, come on, Kreskin, read our minds. Come on, David Copperfield, make a camel disappear. In reality, that's all they wanted was cheap entertainment. And Jesus said, you'll get your sign. You're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to be alive again walking around. Later on, it clicked with the disciples. At the time, they didn't know what he was talking about. They just thought, hmm, the temple gets torn down, he'll build it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So he was doing miracles, and regular people were believing, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So there were people who followed Jesus, saw the miracles, were impressed, and said, boy, you made me a believer. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them. That is, he wasn't that impressed. He didn't go, oh, great. You're believing in me. That's so wonderful. Because he didn't need that kind of credibility. He knew who he was. And he knew people's hearts. He knew the people who would turn to him and then later turn away from him. And he still does. So he doesn't. He knows people's hearts. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Well, we get the answer right here. Who can know it? Jesus can. He knows our hearts. He knows our future. He knows what we're thinking and planning. And, and yet... He continues to work with us. He continues to deal with us and love us and, and show his grace toward us. But he sees right through us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, as he comes and reveals himself, John the Baptist testifying of him, Jesus working some miracles, Jesus tipping over the religious system of the day because that's what he came to do, just to rock their world to surprise everyone and Jesus with his grace and love and mercy just reaching out to people and wanting to touch their lives. It's going to be a fun journey through the gospel of John and I, I, I met my goal. I really thought, I want you guys to be actually walking out of here by 8.30 and I think you'll be able to do that if you're not in a big hurry and if the band will get their, get their show on the road, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you that you became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've beheld your glory. We saw it. We know you're God. Lord, as we continue this journey through the gospel of John, open our eyes as to who you are. And even more than that, give us that life that comes in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all